Welcome to the Not Quite Compassion podcast. This is number, episode number 28, entitled A Refugee Story with Adafi Akporo. Uh, Adafi migrated from Nigeria as an asylum seeker in 2016, largely because of persecution uh, as being in a gay man. Uh, when Adafi arrived at um, the U.S., he uh, went on to become the mobilization director of Talent Beyond Boundaries. He's also the author of a forthcoming book called Asylum, a memoir and manifesto. It's scheduled to um, come out in the summer of 2022. And Adafi is the founder of The Point. Uh, along with a, um, a winner of uh, numerous awards, I found Adafi to be um, full of tremendous amount of wisdom and insight and, and grace. Um, he has such profound insight um, uh, of the refugee experience and uh, as a, as in, as, and as a, as a gay experience. And I just, um, gosh, I learned so much from him, and I was honored to have him on uh, our little, my little podcast. So uh, enjoy. So it is a real honor to have you on my, my little bitty podcast, uh, and I'm so excited you're here. Thank you. You know, I think that Cal is not, I, I wouldn't call it small. They said, get two or three people are gathered, is a gathering. And me, you, and the listener makes it a gathering. And like, we are living in a society whereby it's very difficult to find compassion. So, however, we could go about progressing that message, I think we should celebrate it like, Welcome to this big opportunity to share this message. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I feel like that's that's the heartbeat of of my of of what I hope to convey. Right? Is is a growing sense of compassion in my life, and it seems the same with you as well. What would you mind sharing? Because obviously, that doesn't just like happen in our lives, right? It's cultivated. Um, would you mind sharing a little bit about your story? Maybe beginning with. Um, becoming an asylee from Nigeria and, yeah. and, and the situation around that? Yeah, so my experience of becoming an asylum seeker is horrible, but I think I developed compassion way before then, but I didn't know that I have developed compassion until I became an adult. So when I was very young, like about 11 years old, my grandmother, she's a very religious Christian, like she goes to church every Sunday and like four times a week. She's always there. And she tried to take me to church sometimes. And I was finding it difficult to be like a member of the church because like I feel like it's only old people that go to church. They are so, they are manipulated. I have so many kind of like beliefs that kind of hamper my ability to see through the genuine um, relationship that people build with their God, like Christ or any other God you worship. And not until I was 18, when I came out as a gay man in my country, I came out to my family that I'm gay and there was backlash. Nobody in my family accepted it. Everybody's religious very religious Christian. They were like, no, 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 no. We're not going to accept this. It was only my grandmother, this very religious Christian that goes to church four times a week on Sunday, that said that no matter how you identify, you are still my son. I love you. I will support you. 
And I feel like that has been the, the backbone of my life. I never fight people to make them understand my point of view. Because if you try to fight somebody to change their point of view, you are driving them to become more and more um, apprehensive towards listening to you. Mm-hmm. So that experience subsequently led me to seek asylum because I was a victim of mob violence twice in my own country mm-hmm. because of my sexual orientation. Really? I became an wow. activist fighting for access to healthcare in Nigeria because when I was doing my youth services like Peace Corps, I was posted to a rural community. There was no pipe bone water. We have only one community clinic. And mothers who are pregnant, who are HIV positive, end up transmitting HIV to their children. And that really hit me bad because I'm like, these children do not know anything in this world and they are just born into such kind of complication. What can I do to educate them? And they were Muslims. They were refusing to take the HIV medication for pregnant women. If they did, the transmission would have not been transmitted to their children. So how can you allow religion to prevent you from having access to a life-saving medication that would save an unborn child that knows nothing about this world? That was what drew me into activism and why I was doing activism for pregnant mother-to-child, prevention of mother-to-child, PMTCT, I discovered that the HIV rate among gay men in Nigeria is even higher. Mm. So that led me to advocating for gay men in Nigeria. And in 2016, I won an award for my work as a grassroots activist in Nigeria from a U.S. organization my names and photographs were posted online as an activist. The community where I was living in is a Muslim-dominated community. They posted my photograph on the street, saying that I should be brought down dead or alive for uh, advocating for gay men to have access to healthcare treatment because there's a federal law wow. in my country that criminalizes organizations that provide services for marginalized community. That is like women who are involved in sex work, ingestion, drug users, laymen are also categorized in that community. So I had to flee. And that's how I came to the U.S. to seek asylum. Wow. Long story short. Yeah, that is amazing. Um, being now in the, in, in the United States for the last five years or so? Almost five years in October. What are some ways to... What has been the differences or the similarities in your experiences as a gay black man in Nigeria versus being a gay black man in the United States? I didn't know what was black in Nigeria. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's why I was. I, I, I didn't know that I'm a black person. Yeah. I just leave us in Nigeria. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, when Thanks I came for saying to the that. US, yeah. <laughs> I was detained by immigration for six months when I was released from the immigration detention center as a refugee, I was homeless. And while I was homeless in Newark, I was walking past the Newark Penn station and another guy saw me and said, like, go back to your country. This is an African-American guy. And I'm like, it was like, go back to uh, Asia, something like that. That's Haiti. I didn't know. I thought it was talking about Asia, like Southeast Asia. So I was like, I'm not from Asia. 
He was like, no, Asians killed my brother. So all of you are the same. Go back to Asia. I was like, I'm not Haiti. He said, I don't care. All of you that are from the global south are the same. And that was when I noticed that, oh, there's a difference between me and other black people in America. Blacks in America are descendants from slaves. That's they have a lineage with slavery. Diaspora blacks that migrate to America are a different type of black people. But for a white person or a non-black person that is not close to the black and brown community might see all black people as the same, would see all black people as the same. But within the black community, there's differences. And this is the biggest struggle I have had. I have an identity crisis in the white community and black. In the black community, I'm African. Within the African community in America, I am gay. There's a distinction. Within the gay community in America, I'm a refugee. So every community I go into, I am an outsider. Within the refugee community, sometimes I am an activist. I'm too outspoken for the community. Mm. So I've always been an outsider, like every day I find myself. That is why compassion became a big part of my life because there's a difference between empathy, uh, feeling sympathy or empathy for somebody. Empathy is like trying to understand the pain somebody's going through. But compassion is way different. It's yeah. taking action to make somebody feel comfortable in a place where they traditionally would not be comfortable in. So I empathize with you as a black gay man and a refugee in America. Does no good for me. But if you are compassionate, you are saying, how can I make life a little bit better for you in America, despite all the differences you might have? That's, that's so interesting that your experience within marginalized communities they they was to be further marginalized within that marginalization right that yeah. there is this this tendency to um, and I think underneath all of that is a sense of almost like paternalism of like creating a hierarchy within a really low ceiling, right? As opposed to mm-hmm. liberation of, um, cause I think that's, that's, and it, it's so interesting that, um, that communities do that. I think, I, I think, I think that that shows up in every kind of community, this, this yeah. desire to marginalize even within already marginalized. I just think, find that fascinating. That's what the colonizers left us with. Yeah. Teaching us to, ourselves against each other like if we take for example climate change affects us all but within the climate change movement the people that are agitators are the people that will be affected the most if the sea level rises is because we are creatures of stories right the stories we have been told are how we perceive the world for example if you are close to an immigrant or you, an immigrant family help your father if he's very sick in the hospital and they didn't die because they work as EMT, 
the narrative of immigrants are like, wow, they saved my family's life. But if you are close to a situation whereby, let's take 9-11, for example, a tragic situation, whereby some of the agitators are Muslim immigrants. And the narrative you now have is that all Muslim people are bad. Within every community, there are good people or bad people. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that one broad stroke should be used to paint everybody in that community. So what I'm trying to say, piggyback, is that within the marginalized community, they have good people, people who see through the, the, the struggle of other people in a marginalized community. But by and large, most people who have been marginalized lack resources. So when they are in power, they want to show other people like, hey, white people oppress me. I have to oppress you too so that you know that there's a difference between me and you, just like yeah. there's a difference between them and me. So they bring their trauma, mm-hmm. pain to afflict other people. Yeah. Yeah, that is, oh gosh, that's incredibly wise and insightful. You're right. Because if, if we don't address the trauma of the oppression, you're saying we are doomed to repeat it. We're going to be definitely perpetrators of that trauma. And that's something I have learned for myself too. You know, I came from a very poor background. With my own country, I didn't have access to like three square me. My entire family live on less than $3,000 a year. <laughs> you won't believe. Like my entire family. I was the first person in my family to have a college education. So when I came to America and started the master's degree, I had a very good job. I showed my book. I won an award. I made some money. I was traumatized by the fact that I don't have to go to a supermarket and question what I want to buy. Poverty, pain, the kind of trauma that stings with you is so difficult to break away from it. Like I will have money in the bank. I can't spend it because of my experience as a refugee. I'm like, I need six mm. to 12 months of my expenses in a bank. Should the case something happen, how can I survive? Because when I left my country, I have no money. When I came to America, I have no time. That was why I was homeless. So that's those trauma of being a homeless person, uh, a displaced person, growing up in a very poor background, uh, generational trauma are inherited, yeah. and some are environmental circumstances that I have to break away from before I have a child so that I don't have to put my trauma on them. Like my child wants to buy a toy. I'm like, no, you can't have it. When I was growing up, I didn't have this toy. It's not the effort. Yeah. It's circumstances that happen to me that I have to address my own trauma and don't put it on other people. That is how marginalization works, is that you have been treated in a way that is bad. It's difficult to have compassion for yourself on how much you have grown and not to treat other people in the same way you are treated. Mm. Wow. Wow, Adafi, that's, um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a bit speechless. That's, that's remarkable. This, um, this moving from a scarcity mindset to an, almost like an abundance, right, of, of, of having a sense of imagination of what, beyond anything of your, um, of your heritage or your, um, or your historical background would allow you, right? It's almost like, um, yeah. 
yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a decision to almost imagine beyond what you've you've ever been told you could. Is that what I hear you saying? Yeah, yeah. and th- that is what my work of Saran did with refugees too. So because when I speak in the refugee community, people are like, "Oh, my my family are immigrants. They came here the right way. Why don't you guys want to come here the right way?" And I'm like, "When your family were coming to America." They were quota system, and only one set of immigrants were allowed to come into America then. You must be white and male. So the quota system enabled your parents who were Irish to come here, um, Czech and every other country to come here. And when they opened immigration system for other people to come, like Italians, it was women and men from Europe they were allowed to come into America. Mm-hmm. The first time America took on the arts to like support poor people was before the 1951 Refugee Convention document. Um, President Harry Truman passed the Displaced Act. The Displaced Act helped not refugees, people who were affected by war in Europe to come into America to see protection because it was America's branding strategy. Like, hey, we are helping people who are survivors of war in Europe. We are the greatest country in the world. That narrative now swamped America's ideology of the role they play in the world. And today, America is less compassionate to what they were 50 years ago when they passed the 1951 Refugee Convention document. In 1980, when the U.S. Congress passed the asylum law that enabled me to be able to see protection in America. America today is getting more, more and more close-minded mm-hmm. instead of that same mentality that we had in 1950, 1949, 1980, that America was the responsibility to welcome people who are if I didn't find America, if I didn't find safety in America, I might have been dead. Yeah. Even after finding safety in America, I still struggle with a lot of things, but I'm grateful some days. I'm like, I am glad I was able to come into this country. What would my life be like? And that is the, the message I think that affects a lot of people is that immigrants coming to America and some people say they succeed more than Americans because there is a form of limitation that Americans place on themselves that they don't see beyond the boundless opportunities they have. If you have a U.S. passport, you can travel to almost every country in the world without applying for a visa. I asked a friend, have you ever applied for a visa to travel? Do you know what it is to apply for a visa? He said, no. He said, no, I've never applied for a visa. I go to Europe. I was like, if you are from Nigeria, only West Africa, you can travel without a visa. Every country you want to go to, you have to provide asset information to show that you can travel. You just can't just vacation to to Europe. can't just vacation to Aruba or anywhere you want to go to. That's a privilege. And yeah. If you're an American, if you travel to any country in the world and they ask you, where are you from? You say you are an American. There's a level of respect people give to you 
that comes with like a patting on your back. People serve you water. People clean your table, wash your car for you, because they're like, oh, he's an American. Like, yeah. I don't know. It's like a shockwave in the person's brain that wow, I've met an American. So there's a lot of privilege people have on this land that they take for granted. When immigrants come into this country, they see those opportunities and they're like, I have constant electricity. If I pay for it, I will have it, clean drinking water. And they're like, I'm going to kill myself to have all these things that people take for granted. Yeah. But instead of people to say, wow, these people live through their lives without having opportunity to have electricity 24 hours in a day, let them still enjoy some passion of their life. They're like, why are they coming here and becoming successful? But the success for that immigrant might just be having an apartment all to themselves after they have grown up from a place where they are 13 people in one room or having clean drinking water to, to drink and being grateful for that. And people are like, why are they coming here and living good lives? But yeah. Good life for an immigrant is not the same for an American. Don't you think, though, that at least this is a theory I've had for a while, that American exceptionalism or is this exceptionalism in, in, um, in general? One, I think, I think it's a very thin line between um, exceptionalism and supremacy. I think there's a very, very thin line between the two. But also, I think at the very least, at, at the worst, it, it becomes supremacy. At the best, I think um, exceptionalism can turn into a, a lack of self-awareness or self-reflection. Um, and we're not aware of, of like, as you said, the world around us. Uh, we're not aware of our unconscious biases because um, we continually think we're the exception to the rule. I think that's why the, um, the COVID-19 response in America was just so terrible. It's because we thought we would be the exception that how could some foreign disease affect us? We're so special and we have the greatest um, medical capacity in the world. system in the world. But, but yeah, you know, but it, it, it just just destroy. I mean, like it's it's been very humbling. I think to be an American during this to realize that like, oh, <laughs> we live in a global world and a global economy. Maybe we're not as exceptional as we thought. But maybe the best part of that could be we could be a bit more self reflective in that in light of that humility. What do you think? America think through economic models. So America is a short term thinking society. It think through 90 days performance review, 90 days reporting to the SEC. And people are like, how can I achieve this in 90 days? In the next 90 days, what can I achieve? But I think many people come to America or outside America, you think long-term, in 10 years, 12 years, what can we achieve? In Europe, for you to sack an employee To fire an employee in Belgium will take you three months. Just to do that is wow. a struggle. So when you employ somebody, you're not firing them at will. You have to go through processes to fire people. So employment is not at will like America. Mm. So people have confidence that their job will keep them for a long period of time. Mm. Because of the uncertainty in our economic model and the spirit of entrepreneurship, which is good, it also damper how people 
regard other people because it's more competition. How can I dominate in the next 90 days instead of how can I dominate in 12 years? Mm-hmm. So a German car builder is thinking, how can I build a car that will last 12 years? America is like, how can I build a model that will change in 90 days so that they have to return that car and buy a new car or a new phone or stuff like that. So there's always an anxiety that you're not doing enough because who you were 90 days ago is not good enough for the rest of people who are moving on in that next 90 days. Mm. And I have not adopted that model. I still do my long-term way of planning. I'm like, where do I want to be as a person in 35, when I'm 35? I planned for that in my 30th birthday last year. And when I was 25, I was like, where do I want to be when I'm 30? So when I'm in school, I'm not rushing to get out of school because I know that at this time, I'm supposed to be in school and not do anything else. When I'm writing a book, I'm not rushing to like finish the book so that I can write another book. I'm like, this period, I'm supposed to be writing a book. So I think that the exceptionalism, I've created um, a short-term thinking that now affects how people process other areas of their lives we're going through a mental health crisis and breakdown without us even being conscious of it. And like America as a country is not good at planning. Like five years from now, how would this pandemic affect members of the society? How will all this technology and all this pressure affect people? Are we supposed to be training more nurses and psychiatrists so that if there's a breakdown in our culture, it can be able to support people? No, we're thinking, 90 days, 90 days. And when there's a breakdown, mm. there's a catastrophe, we're like rushing, how do we solve the problem? And we're not thinking, how do we solve the coronavirus long-term? We're thinking, how can we reopen next week? So we're thinking with the mentality of reopening instead of sustainability on the long-term. That's why Australia, UK, places that are closing up for a longer period of time, they're thinking the health and well-being of their society for a longer period of time. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, and there's some wisdom there to it. And not only just wisdom because it's a sustain it's more sustainable long term, right? But also it's to your original thought, it's also more compassionate because you're not just burning through people. It's not a dog eat dog world. It's not um using people up as if they're commodities. Um because there's ultimately going to be a cost for that um 90 day 90 day. I mean we see this uh, environmentally all over the place with even something is small. Well, it's not small, but like fast fashion, right? Being, um, you know, that you get that $4 shirt at Old Navy and it lasts you three months, but you don't think anything of it because it's four oh. bucks. But the dye that was created to use that, that, that clothing is in some river that's polluting the world and, and, and uh, creating the, a long-term global crisis for us. So we, we're still paying the price, but we don't see it because we're just thinking 90 days at a time, to your point. Oh, you post on Instagram with that shirt and you can't post with it twice. So you throw it away. Yeah. People yeah. do that. And it all accumulates in the society. Even That's right a great now, point though. It's like, we're only as good as our last social media post, right? Cause we're only thinking short term. It, it, you're right. It's reflective of how we see ourselves too. Are we dispensable? Yeah. And we, we, we are even seeing that right now, be about, Social media have influenced a generation of people 
that are saying that I'm quitting my job because I want to be able to live the kind of life this person is living, traveling around, taking pictures, being in nice beaches, and I'm not having that life right now. And we're not being compassionate to ourselves, like how much we have grown between this pandemic, like a global meltdown. We are still like being able to keep our head up, like smile and still pursue our goals. We want to be William Shakespeare, write three plays in between a global meltdown. So I think that compassion is also understanding that why you want to be compassionate to other people and feel the need to act on behalf of the climate and every other person is to also understand that you have to take care of yourself. Like yeah. with climate change, I have a lot of anxiety. Like I'm always afraid, like if I have a child, will they be able to live in a world, like enjoy some of the amenities I have? Yeah. And one of the way I calm my anxiety is by being compassionate to myself, by asking myself like a few questions like, Am I taking daily action to reduce uh, the climate disaster? Like, am I recycling? I don't use plastics. I have my own shopping bags. I compost. You know, I do some things. Even though these things do not have a greater impact, it reduces the anxiety I'm having that the world is going to melt one day. So it's the same thing with, like, achieving our goal, helping refugees, or doing anything in life is like understanding that there are things that are out of our control genuinely there's nothing we can do about it but what can we do to reduce the anxiety that we have surrounding this thing and one of the ways i was able to do that for myself was i left social media um i sold my book and i won an award october last year i left social media the week i sold my book for eight months because really? it reduces the anxiety of me comparing myself to other people. Yeah. So I can be able to focus on writing my book. I'm in grad school and I was working full time. It's a lot for one person to do. So I removed wow. the thing that was out of my control, which is my comparison with other people yeah. and the level at which I am doing. It's like being compassionate to myself. Like I'm doing enough at this point. There's yeah. nothing else I could do. Anything I try to put on myself, I will be ineffective in doing it. Instead, I should concentrate on the things I have in front of me right now. Oh my gosh, I feel like <laughs> you just said that just for me. I feel like <laughs> that's, that's super helpful because you're right. There is a way of, it is truly being compassionate to yourself and realizing that you're more than just what you can produce or you're more than just how you stack up other people. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, more than the algorithms, yeah, and the, the analytics and the numbers. Yeah. We need more humans and not numbers. So, like, as someone who is a messenger, people ask me sometimes, like, why do you take most of the opportunities you take? You have a very big platform. I'm, I'm currently in Matas Vineyard representing HBO for The Legend of the Underground, a documentary I'm part of in HBO, so it's the Matavinian African-American Film Festival. I wow. have a very big platform to, to take my message around and speak about it. But I say to myself, like, you know, the Hollywood community and the East Coast community, they pretend with a facade that they are doing good, 
but the message does not penetrate. Well, why do we continue to preach to the choir? Why don't we look for new avenues to share the message? Because I think that the most important thing is that somebody might be going through a very difficult day and they are listening to your podcast and they are like, I really enjoyed that conversation that day because two of them were genuine about their struggles, about how they could make the world better. And as they relate with the messaging, it helps them also see in themselves some of the struggles that they are going through. And that's how I feel about it is that I don't serve a specific set of people. Mm. I am there to serve as much people as I can with that message of like, I was a victim of more violence. I almost lost my life because I was fighting for something that is right. But I am not going to rob Peter to pay Paul by saying that I will no longer do this thing again because this thing led me to a difficult life. But it also gave me opportunity to a good life. So I think holding the tension of the good and the bad and not all like, I'm grateful, I'm grateful, I'm grateful, or I'm sad, I'm sad, I'm sad. It's like Mm. knowing that there will be days where you'll be sad. You can still find gratitude in those days. And the days that you have gratitude, you can still highlight that I struggled sometimes too. And holding that balance is that this is life. It's both ups and downs. Yeah, I I term it, I I put it this way. I, I, I say don't to myself mostly <laughs> to, to not curse the hill that I see from because I, mm. I, I, I think there's a lack, there's a lack of wisdom in that to curse the hill that you, you see from, because not that you're somehow I'm celebrating my, some of the past hurts that I had. Cause I think that would just be weird. Right. Um, <laughs> but, but to, to acknowledge that, so that like those, but those same experiences, I wouldn't be here without them. And that is what is part of my story to include and then transcend it. Right. Um, I think it's been, it's been helpful for me. And also not to say that somehow I arrived at some glorious viewpoint, but only to stand from the hill that I see to only n- notice more places of elevation to go. Right. <laughs> that there's, there's the process never ends in, in my, in my personal growth. Um, and, and there's always more. There's always more to travel. I say something that is genuinely me and my struggles. I say that our past is always part of our present, but our future is yet to be written. Everything that brought you to where you are now is part of your past. If you are a better person. It's part of your past. If you're a worse person, it's part of your past. But knowing that you can't erase that past because it defines who you are in the present would help you notice some things that are patterns, that are destructive, some things that are helpful so that you can be able to build a better future, which is yet unknown. Because the future is unknown you shouldn't allow that past to define it. You should dream more. Be hopeful that things will be better. Yeah. Can we talk about spirituality for a little bit? Because you, you kind of began with that and shared how you were raised Christian. And then you, you came out as a gay man, which led to um, seeking asylum. Um, how would you identify spiritually today? I'm a member of the Unitarian Church. Okay. In 
um, I'm a member of the Unitarian Church. I consider myself a believer. I believe in God. I believe in God because I grew up as a Christian. And the only story I know is the story of the Bible. <laughs> it was, I came, when I came to America that I discovered that dinosaurs existed before man. I never knew about that. So, you know, my, my way of thinking was shaped by that. But as I grew up, I began to adapt to the Bible more and more. Yeah. And I adapt it in a genuine way is that I know that the stories are true. And there are elements of truth in all the stories that are reflected in the Bible. Just like if I write a book today, 2,000 years from now, my story is still true for me. But it does not apply to the people 2,000 years from now, like the way it applied to me today. Mm -hmm. And that is my understanding of the Christian Bible today, is that it doesn't really apply to me like the way it applied to the people 3,000 years ago. But... It taught me everything about who I am today. I used to be a pastor. And the story of Ruth, the story of David and Goliath, I think kind of shaped me being a courageous person. Like I could, I could, I could go through difficult moments just like the way Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. I, I, I just used the Bible as a reference for difficult times. And I also used it as a reference for good times. And times I celebrate because I know like there are stories in the Bible of people who were able to survive. All in all, I think my spirituality today mostly comes from nonfiction reading. Like I read a lot about how if we can control our minds, we can control most of the inflow and outflow of how our mind process information. And I'm beginning to do more meditation and mindfulness yeah, because same. I, I'm, I'm clinically diagnosed with anxiety and PTSD. So I struggled a lot of times with my mental health, like a lot. And I think that learning to quiet my mind for some few minutes have helped me to be able to process some of the difficult questions I have, it's like, I'm just going to allow this one lie for a few minutes and forget about it today and come back to it in two days' time. If it's not solved, then I am going to solve it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's my anxiety. I have to learn how to cope with my anxiety, which is a big part of me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you got to feel it to heal it, right? That's what I was being yeah. told. Meditation and mindfulness have been uh, super important for me these last few years too, I think, um, I, th I think, um, it's pretty common for, I, 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 I'm, I think the, the pandemic has at the very least brought mental health to front and center because it's become such a common need in everyone's life, at least in America to like, like, I know for me, it was just, I mean, it was, it was, it was it was weird not to get some counseling <laughs> among my family and my my wife and I. We were like, why? Because we've been in counseling enough that we in therapy enough that we were like, we kind of just know the warning signs of like, okay, I need some help here. You know, I've I've, I've encountered <laughs> something that I don't have the tools to get through, and so I'm I'm looking for help out, out elsewhere. And that's um, so I, I'm grateful for that at the very least. That I think uh, therapy and mental health 
um, has become more of a normative conversation in America, and and people are seeking mm-hmm. help a little a little quicker. The taboo has been removed a bit. Um, the uh, when you made that point about the there, Bible, there's the okay, oh, no good. There's the there's the taboo in the black community though, as regard to mental health. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, speak to that because I actually I have a uh, I had dinner with a friend who's black just a few nights ago, and he is working on developing his own private practice. He's um, he's a clinical uh, therapist, and and he spoke to that. He talked shared with me about that too. How that's pretty new in the black community to not you know, and yeah. then he's probably going to have a lot of people knocking on his door asking for help because there's a huge line of and of demand for black no. therapists. No. People would not knock on his door. They would say they will, but they wouldn't. Oh. Because it's frowned upon in a black community. It's from it's, its roots came from the African tradition. Mm. If you go to, if you talk about mental health in the African tradition, you are crazy. Oh like There's I wish the listeners can see me moving my hand. Yeah. There's people that are psychological, like mad huh. that are that need psychiatric help. But I think that therapy is different from psychiatry or psychoanalysis. And coming to calling it therapy is a new way of like distincting counseling from psychoanalysis, which is like anxiety, depression, and... um, any other type of like PTSD yeah, diagnose like mental, mental illness. Yeah. Diagnose. Yeah. That's a good point. That you. You have to, so I think that those two things are like different things. We all need counsel. Like you need help to talk through difficult things in your life. But in the black community, I think this, this therapy as like psychotherapy instead of counseling and coming to understanding that, we live through traumas of our parents and just learning to talk through those things might help us yeah. be better for ourselves and the generation ahead of us is a way of framing it that people will come around the idea of it. Because in Africa, we have group talk whereby 15 people from your village will gather under a tree. They will play drums, they will drink palm wine, and they will start talking, oh, my mother and I, we fought, me and my husband were fighting. It's just like informal way of like ranting. I think that in the black community, there is still a place for like group therapy, whereby a group of people who are struggling through the same things. Like in Harlem, mm. there's a group for parents of incarcerated children. So they come together, they talk about their struggle, I miss my child, he has been incarcerated for X amount of time, I've not gone to visit him, just like AA, whereby people can be able to like let down their guard and say, oh, oh, that person shared and I'm I'm going through that, I've not been able to talk through it, but maybe one day I'll be able to share my experience, things like that. Can I share something that's bugged me for a few years? I wanted to hear your opinion on it. So I would still identify barely (laughs) as a Christian. Um, (laughs) uh, Although my, my faith is certainly, my spirituality has evolved a lot. 
But one of the tenets I still hold so dearly is that um, we are made in the image and likeness of God. And because of that, we have inherent value and dignity and worth, right, uh, of every human life. And that, that informs a lot of my thoughts around compassion. So what bugs me is when I hear people defend, um, even people of, 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 of faith defend refugee and asylee um, uh, immigration into, into, the, into America, when, when they defend it, they'll defend it by saying that um, they'll cite these statistics about how refugees and asylees um, are able able to boost the economy so much like to your point like they they, they put it they force it back into a, a economic framework right of like look how much they're contributing to the economy and they start these businesses and they're um but in what's what's always bristled me about that is um that 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 goes against the very fabric of, of how i should view a person that they are, are, are either they're inherently valuable or they are not and I believe they are inherently valuable. So to immediately commodify them and to, to say like, oh, they're, they're, we'll get a return on our, on our investment uh, if we bring them in is, is undignifying to the very people we claim we, we should have compassion for. How's that? What do you feel about that pushback? Th- additional thoughts? I, I would love to hear your perspective on it. So... That's not my lingo of like, we bring economic value to the country. It's not part of my lingo because we define refugees through the good immigrant narrative. And that is a struggle is that we refugees who are more privileged than every other type of immigrant because we have documents to walk, we can travel, we can build our lives. But an asylum seeker who hasn't been granted asylum yet doesn't have those privileges. An undocumented person doesn't have those privileges. But for an immigrant to leave their country, something pushes them to leave their country. So when they get to a new country, why do we define them based on the value? And those immigrants that have businesses is like continuing that American narrative of successful immigrants. Yeah. And when an immigrant is not successful, imagine the pressure on that immigrant. Because when they want to make an example, they turn and say, look at Albert Einstein. He was a refugee. Malala Yousafzai, she's a refugee. Freddie Mercury is a refugee. So they make examples of like, Freddie Mercury that is in Queen, one of the biggest band in the world. Albert Einstein is like a crazy scientist. Malala Yousafzai is like out of the world, brilliant. But what about a refugee that lives close to you, that have a family, their children go to school, and doesn't cause any problem? Do we define Americans based on the finest and people that contribute to the society the most? By virtue of being born in this land, you are an American. So why do we define refugee yeah, based on exactly. these characteristics? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why I don't support that narrative is that every refugee have their own unique story which makes them distinctively honorable to go through that struggle, to be in this door of this country, asking for an opportunity to build their life. Everybody should be given that opportunity. 
That's a great point. You're right. We don't do that to people born in America. We think they're, because they're born here, they are, um, as you put it, like, in, how would you put it, inherently basically valuable because they're just born Americans, but we don't, but we force this commodification or this economic outlook upon refugees and asylees. Refugees. Yeah. Refugees have to be exceptional yeah. for them to be mentioned. Oh, found out Salesforce is an immigrant. Like, you have to be exceptional. Yeah. And, and as you know, too, there's a, that exceptionalism, there's a thin line between a black person being our enter- source of entertainment and a source of exploitation. There is a, and a, sometimes they're one and the t- same. I have a theory for that. Right. It's not much different than the shut up and dribble uh, narrative, right? Where you should, be, for you should be grateful for what you have, LeBron. Like it's all, it's sim- you know, there's a lot of similar things happening there. Sorry, go ahead. If you watch the Olympics, you see a lot of black athletes winning gold medal. They are celebrated by Japan, South Korea, America, Britain, like everywhere in the world, black people win. The most gold medals in the Olympic were won by a black athletes this past Olympic. Yeah. But in those same countries, Australia, Canada, UK, like Japan, all those places where they play basketball, baseball, and everything, run and swim. They are celebrated for athletics because they are representative of the country, but they don't want them to influence their culture. Yeah. So the backlash is not that these people are not good. Yeah, there is no argument with that. But do we want them to influence how we live and how we do things in the society? No, we don't. Black people are too loud. Black people are not cautioned. Yeah. If you take them to places, they don't behave like white people or stuff like that. I have a story. I don't want to share it because it's like my husband-to-be, my mother-in-law, something happened. And I said to her that this is Harlem. You live in the suburb of Long Island. Don't be afraid of people here. Nobody's going to bite you. Because people don't behave here like the way they behave in the suburb. But they are not hoodlums. They are not going to cause any harm to anybody. It's just Harlem way of doing things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I've really enjoyed yeah. um, our time together. Thank you for um, for spending uh, the, the, this time. It's just been I've learned so much, Adafi. Thank you. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you very much. I appreciate. Yeah. Any final here. words for us before we sign off? Um, I think I will go back to that quote I said, um, is that our past is, our past is only part of our present, but our future is yet to be written. And it's like, I say to myself, I have come too far to give up now. So wherever you are in your life, you might be going through struggles or you might be succeeding. You know, even succeeding is hard. Because we're not primed to experience joy. We want joy, but if we have joy in our life, we start planning catastrophic things. Oh, something bad yeah. is going to happen. Like, oh my God. So mm-hmm. two things. If you are struggling, celebrate the fact that you are holding up your head above the water despite everything. And if you are experiencing joy, express it fully because it's so difficult 
to experience joy. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, excellent. Thank you, Adafe Akporo. Um, this has been just a joy. Thank you so much. listening to the Not Quite Compassion podcast. It'd mean the world to me if you took the time to rate uh, and review, leave a little comment on iTunes or Spotify about the podcast. Tell us what you like about it. And it really helps with the ranking of it and for more people to be able to find it. Um, also, if you have any questions about the podcast or suggestion or something, um, go ahead and just email me. It's uh, kyledeanreynolds at gmail.com. Simple as that. So K-Y-L-E-D-E-A-N-R-E-Y N-O-L-D-S, Kyle Dean Reynolds at gmail.com. Uh, or you can always reach out to me on the socials uh, at, at Kyle Reynolds on Twitter. Thanks. Mm-hmm.